You are listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from Western's Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. In this series, join me, Eric Morse, as we uncover the stories of our entrepreneurial legends. These Western founders have revolutionized industries, built recognizable brands, and added richness to lives across Canada and beyond. Discover their origins, their greatest moments, their deepest challenges, and what makes each of them tick. Welcome to the Legend Series. If the world of business is a sport, entrepreneurs are often the ones creating the rules. That was definitely the case for IBMBA Trent Kitsch, who changed the men's underwear industry forever with the introduction of Saks Underwear. Born and raised in Kelowna, BC, Kitsch has always had the energy, passion, and determination that marks out the best entrepreneurs. Throughout his still young career, Kitsch has managed to not only reinvent age-old products, but also score major wins in young industries. A legendary serial entrepreneur, Kitsch shares his journey of building a brand during his MBA, and how his ability to recognize opportunities has helped him be at the right place at the right time. I always think of entrepreneurs coming from kind of three different pools, let's say. Those that kind of know that I want to be an entrepreneur, right? I'm, they're looking for opportunities all the time. Those that kind of fall into it, like they're working somewhere, but they see a problem, and it's like, oh, somebody ought to fix it, maybe it's me. And then those that, that do it because that's the opportunity that they have, and the only opportunity they have in front of them. But you strike me as somebody that was, I'm looking for an opportunity. So, you know, was that part of the family background? Is it part of the culture? I know Kelsey's an entrepreneur as well, your sister. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was raised in a family of entrepreneurs, and my mom was an entrepreneur, and my dad was an entrepreneur, and I understand my grandpa was the first taxi cab company in our town in the 20s. And I think uh, I was definitely raised to believe in yourself and to depend on yourself. And we were taught that no one else could give you a pink slip, as my dad would say. But at the same time, obviously, you take on a lot of different responsibilities to be the entrepreneur. And I think uh, definitely my raising around the environment I was raised in had a lot to do with it. And then, like you say, my sister, Kelsey Ramsden, two-time Canadian Female Entrepreneur of the Year. <laughs> Uh, she she put in a good name with Kitsch to get me in here, greased me into Ivy a little bit, I think. Lowest GMAT score probably they've ever accepted. But um, no, it definitely had a lot to do with it, how I was raised in that environment. Okay. I, I know a little bit more about your background. Uh, you were drafted by the Colorado Rockies. So baseball has been a big part of your life as well. Has sports been a part of shaping kind of you know who you are as well in some way? I think definitely being an athlete helped me with regards to routine and preparation and focus and at the same time helped me fail a lot you know like I've struck out so many times in my life and been embarrassed by making errors in front of you know tens of thousands of people and uh, definitely I think it had a lot to do with it and then ultimately with regards to sacks I think it had so much to do with it because I couldn't have designed sacks without my background in baseball being a catcher and all the things I tried to do to protect myself but uh, yeah it really helped and I think it still applies today the athletic background 
uh, certainly that that perseverance and that willingness to work hard at something, right? With with and never give up. Let's go back to kind of coming into into Ivy and Western and. You know, when you came, was it, I'm looking for an idea? Was it, I just want a background? How did you take this turn? Yeah, when when I uh, had the kind of moment, if I could tell the story maybe, right? I think you should. Yeah, so it was about three or four days before my second year of the MBA program, and I was out at the Queen Charlotte Lodge fishing with my dad. And if you guys know the show, The Deadliest Catch, like the big red ocean suits that they wear, and this is like day three, and if you're hanging out with your parents for you know any time, there's not that much to talk about after like day one. So it's quiet on the boat for like literally two days almost. And I was sitting out in the front triangle part of the boat, and just the way the suit was kind of pushing the package for a few days was getting into my mind, and I just you know was uncomfortable enough, and I was staring off into the horizon. It was just flat, like sea. And I, and I just thought to myself, how could I reinvent men's underwear to prevent contact and be more comfortable? And I'm just talking to myself in the front of the boat, you know? And, and then in my mind's eye, I just started drawing the sack side panels and morphed all the hard jocks and all the things I'd been involved in being a back catcher to protect me into a soft thing. And then so when I got back off the boat, I went back to my little fishing cabin and started drawing it just as you would imagine kind of on the napkin and that's where the idea for sax was born and the vision for the side panels was being drawn in my my brain yeah, yeah very cool uh you know i remember you describing it i said this on the way over to me because i was like i i don't i'm not sure i get it and you go sliding shorts but really comfortable and they'll look good on you yeah. that's like okay i kind of get that now uh so and Stuart's here i think he was probably head of your section right and what, well, in new venture Stu and yourself and and dave simpson so many really uh vital entrepreneurs that helped me and inspired me bob norse and were big backers of an idea at that time when a lot of people thought it was a bad idea. You know, I had a lot of people when I told them the idea for Saks the first time, they thought it was a joke, they thought it was just a bad idea. But I thought to myself, it's really an experiment and I wanna see if my idea is bad because I think it's good, right? And so I basically took those um, drawings and when I got back to campus, I had to pitch you guys to do the new venture project. So it's a, it's a course uh, that we have at Ivy and, and soon we'll have across campus. Uh, uh, we're gonna be offering a certificate in entrepreneurship uh, that'll be taught by the Ivy Business School but open to anyone on campus. And this is kind of the capstone course where you get to put a business plan together. Uh, and so Trent's talking, he, he ran quickly with that. We soon had uh, people from the fashion program out at Fanshawe. That's right. I think so, we had some of your baseball buddies up here. Yeah, I, I uh, basically didn't have any capital, right? But I had the good idea, and I had a tuition receipt for Ivy, and uh, the Royal Bank was giving out student loans rather easily. So I told the Royal Bank that I needed the money for tuition and then allocated most of it to my Saks dream, and I had a $20,000 student loan and basically went out to Fanshawe College 
and told the fashion dean about my idea. She thought it was a terrible idea. She just thought I was basically out there just trying to meet girls. And uh, that could have been like maybe partly true at that time, but I said to her, no, I'm very serious. I think it's a great idea. Here's my drawings. You know, I don't know how to sew. I don't know anything about patterns. Could you hook me up with your all-star, whoever's your best designer? And just by chance, one of her designers had done an underwear project the year previously. So she kind of, you know, extended the olive branch and, and this really great designer named Kara Megan was uh, kind enough to do the patterns for $1,500. And we'd get together and uh, prototype the idea together, literally in the Ivy Business building at night. And over the course of about a month, we went from no patterns, no idea, to a prototype. I would go to La Senza at the mall here, and I'd go in there and I'd pick out the softest underwear I could find, and it would be pink and flowers. And, then I would take that down to Queen Street West on the weekend. I'd be like, I need this, but in black, you know? And I need this waistband, not pink, but black. And, and then I just basically, over the course of a few months, made the first 200 pairs. And I folded up the bags and did the Avery label print off in my dorm or my apartment, I guess, and set up the table for the first 200 pairs at the Student Union at Western, and I sold the first 200 pairs at the Student Union just before Christmas. And then I went away at Christmas, and no idea. And it was kind of like I said earlier, like an experiment. You know, what do people think, or do they think it's gonna be any good? And then when I got back from Christmas, people would be coming up to me on campus, hey, you're the underwear guy. Could I get a pair of those underwear? And I was like, interesting, <laughs> okay, yeah. yes you can. Just no way, just one minute. And uh, I had enough money for 400 pairs. So then I made the 400 pairs. I expanded my distribution from the student union to the student union and the Ivy building, Tim Hortons parking lots. Um, on the weekend, I would drive down and hang out in front of Lululemon in Toronto because I knew people had a bunch of money coming out of there. <laughs> and I would sell pairs. And, and then I had enough money for 800 pairs. And that's the first kind of evolution of how I, I got the first you know, 1,000 pairs sold. Love it. And it, it was a, from an outside perspective, a meteoric rise, right? I'm sure it didn't feel that way to you. But so he went from the, the New Venture project uh, where, you know, he got a grade for this project. But then he went to the business plan competition, yeah. which was a month later, I guess January when yeah. you came back. And then you're on the Dragon's Den, what, how many months later? Basically, yeah, we were, were fortunate enough to represent Ivy well, and we won the business plan competition for Ivy. Then we got to go to the national business plan competition. And I pitched the idea there. And in the audience was a producer for Dragon's Den. And then they invited me to do the show. So that's how I got on the show. And What'd they think of the idea? Well, the Dragons actually, Arlene get, got it. Arlene offered me a deal. I went in there for 250000 for 10% because that was the post-money valuation of $2.5 million. They countered with uh, $500,000 for 10%, you know? So basically it was... Uh, it was, it was a great experience, and then we ended up winning the Armchair Dragon Award, which was a $50,000 prize at the end of the season for the best product that didn't get a deal. So I remember some promotion going on about that. Trent. Yeah, it was amazing, and we filmed the episode. Then I went to China with the help of my classmates, which I would share to all of you. You know, it was so instrumental having great 
peers and classmates that helped me as well. And then the episode aired in like October and our sales were, you know, single thousands a day. And then that night it was like $40,000 and just really was a catalyst for the success that still exists today. Yeah, you've been great at promotion, I think, uh, throughout the years. And, and you did it, you know, how do you do it on, on low resources, right? So some of, the, some of you in the room would have read the story that we ran about Richard Branson, and, and some of you may not know that story. But, yeah, you should tell that story because it's yeah. great. Well, I was, again, just in my apartment one night, and I saw Richard Branson was coming to MTV Live, like, the following day. And, and Richard Branson someone I've always looked up to, read all his books, and... So I was pumped I was going to meet Richard Branson or just be like in the same room with him type of thing. And so I uh, did this handwritten letter and, and did a folded up the sacks really nice in the bag and everything. And then I got some Ivy classmates of mine together. We drove down to Toronto. Um, they start the show, right? Richard Branson's going to come out. It's like a commercial break. One of the producers says, does anybody have a question for Richard? And I'm like, way up like yeah me, me, me. <laughs> and he's like what are you gonna ask him and i said i'm gonna ask him about getting boxed out of heathrow by british airways and and the producer was like oh this guy knows something about richard cool here's the mic so then i had the live mic and i was so pumped and and uh, i'm just waiting for the red light to come on and the red light comes on and i take off my jacket which has like the big sax logo on it and I uh, tell Richard, you know, speaking of balls and bollocks, I have this company that's talking about sax and give him the pitch. And then I go up on stage, like I walk over the first row, all the security guards like come right to the edge of the screen. The producer's like all mad, like right there. And I uh, proceed to pull the pair out and Richard, instead of like getting mad, he takes the pair out and puts them on over his pants. And me and Richard Branson go on like this two minute riff on underwear. And he tells me I'm great at promoting my product. And I'm just like in dream state. <laughs> and uh, then as I can tell the episode or the segments coming to a close and the security guards are getting closer. And, and then they closed the segment. I had already predetermined there was a fire exit like right off the stage over here. So as soon as the red lights off, I just like dropped the mic, jumped over the railing, down the fire exit, out the door, and just kept running. <laughs> Mission accomplished. And, but, but I got MTV Live for like three minutes and it was a great moment, really. I still have the picture of Branson wearing sacks in my office. <laughs> So you had this kind of meteoric rise uh, to that point, but I, I know it's not, it's not always been easy and there's been some hard lessons. Definitely. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share some of those hard lessons with, with the group. Yeah, you know, I think that what you said earlier, 10 year overnight success story is so true and everything takes a lot of hard work and uh, smart work. If you can work smarter than harder, that's something that I didn't learn until a little bit later. But I guess one of the main lessons is like when I was selling companies or when you sell a company, so many people think it's the best moment of your life and you even think it might be before you do it. And then actually what you find as an entrepreneur is you might be just a worn out, exhausted human being who is like mentally and physically at the end of the rope. And I literally, when I sold my first company, like just hung out in the bottom of my pool for like six months, just like fixing it and just trying to like kind of get my energy back, yeah. you know? Cause I think 
back to the baseball metaphor, I think entrepreneurship is a lot like seasons. And I treat it like spring training, the season, and the off season. And so when I'm getting ready to go into an idea, I might need to train for three months before I even show up to pitch you, you know? And then now we're in the spring training session and maybe I get a deal and then now I gotta go perform. So now I'm in the season and that can be 10 years. It can be three years, five years. You don't know how long you're gonna be in that uh, opportunity. And then when you sell the business, you need to build yourself back up. And, and I would say that's very true. I, I love that metaphor. I, I think we often kind of paced over how hard it is and how much hard work has to go into really creating a successful business. And when it's your business, there's also the emotion that's tied up into it. Yeah. So I, I get that, uh, having to recharge when you after you've sold. And having a support system. I wouldn't be here without Rhea, my wife, and she was so instrumental in the success of Saks. She was there from the very start. We've done more business. You didn't meet her at Fanshawe, did you? No. <laughs> and, and so that was something that was very critical to the success, you know. But I would also say to entrepreneurs, it's the reason you're doing it can give you so much motivation. What is the reason why you might be doing something or wanting to do something? And then that can really stoke your fire again versus just going and doing it. Step back. Why am I doing this? What's the main reason? And then you can get going forward again. Cool. So you're somebody that I think has been ahead of the curve on a, a number of your businesses. So can you tell us a little bit about how you look at opportunity and, and maybe so after this, I think it was Doja mm -hmm. Cannabis, yeah. and you sold that to Canopy yeah. for a good sum. And now it's uh, Kitsch Wines, yeah. uh, which is an ongoing concern, and some yeah. brilliant wines, by the way, if you get the chance. Uh, so how do you look at opportunity, Trent? I think as an entrepreneur, one has to be able to recognize problems. If I had to summarize entrepreneurship in a s sentence, it would be problem recognition. So if you can recognize problems, then you're potentially an entrepreneur. And then if you can think about solutions and create those solutions, then you are an entrepreneur. So I think there's that curiosity piece you spoke to, but I think it's really firstly about problem recognition. And then once you get through that and you think about, you know, is there a solution? And then hopefully many people share this problem, then it could be a big opportunity. You've also been early into, is, is there something, you know, that you've trained yourself perhaps, or when you're looking for those problems, you seem to be early into those industries. Anything to shed light on that? That's yeah. a hard one, I know. No, no, I think it's a great question. And basically, I think when legislation changes in the cannabis example, it creates vacuums of opportunity where there's no incumbent, there's no brand that already is the Coca-Cola of the space. So it can help you look better and move faster because there isn't those entrenched barriers. So I always am looking at, at uh, what's changing. And I also search Google News all the time with, with things like abandoned, uh, bankrupt, um, you know, the carbon credit, like anything that's kind of a macro problem. Then I just kind of scratch the surface on that and, and explore. Cool. I know you and Rhea are running, uh, you know, Kitch Wines, yeah. but if we were to ask you what's next, where are you looking? Yeah. Not that you don't have a lot to do already, and yeah. kids are here and everything mm -hmm. else, but anything you're looking at or spaces? Well, I think the energy transition is such an amazing opportunity right now. If I was a young person 
with limited resources or no resources, I would definitely be getting involved in energy transition, be it electrification, be it, uh, you know, carbon credits. Those are things that I think are really great future opportunities. I think the opportunity that exists with water is going to be amazing. We're definitely going to see that in our near future. Um, and then I think there's new opportunities that weren't as close to the consumer as, as we all are today when I came through. So trying to develop SACS even in 2007, if I was at the same stage today, I could get to the customer in different ways. Maybe more noise, maybe more competition today equally, but I think that's also a really unique and amazing opportunity that, that we all have today is, is I think the power of the brand is diminishing somewhat in return for social proof from people who are experts. So you can build your own brand and build your own expertise. Direct to consumer. Yeah, which I think is, is, you know, as a brand has always been. But I just think you can get there a bit quicker now. Yeah, yeah very cool. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience who will be thinking about uh, questions. Not just yet. i got two more, but be thinking. Uh, you know, if you were to go back to your university days, whether it's undergrad or, or MBA, is there anything that you wish we would have really pushed harder on, like to, to help you prepare for your entrepreneurial career that, that we didn't do and, and we can get better at maybe? Well, I was just uh, spending the last week with some of my Ivy friends, you know, and I think that's something that I would encourage us all to do better on. I could have done better on when I was here. The school can do better on it. And as all of us, we can do better on it. Just getting to know each other more and really getting interested with what the other people in your class are interested in. We all are in this incredible environment where Ivy or Western has siphoned down the smartest people in the world, literally. And they are your peers, your classmates, and every one of you has your own amazing special sauce where you might speak this language or you might have this background or, you know, your parents might have been in the fashion industry and, and so I think everyone just needs to appreciate themselves a little bit more and, and really mix with each other and get to know each other and know that in the future you're going to be doing all these transactions and deals together and you're going to come up together and don't lose touch with each other. That's what I would say is something that I, be, and I think it would be great that people can be experts now a lot earlier. I would share that too. Like I still don't know how to sew. I still don't know how to make patterns. But if I tried to, maybe I would only be at the Tim Hortons now selling pairs, <laughs> you know? So I would say just know that you can always hire experts. And I had some really great people that believed in me at certain times. So uh, distance yourself from negative people <laughs> if you can as well. And, and reinforce and spend a lot of time with people that are supportive and, and going to pump you up rather than try to tell you from the sides, well, they're not doing anything, not for you to try. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it's a community here of a lot of like-minded folks. And so getting to know uh, your peers with an interest in entrepreneurship uh, is a really powerful thing. And you were talking just a little while ago about you, you never know, you know, 10 years later, you've got somebody from your class that's doing this amazing thing. And, you know, they can help you out in different ways, or you might even help them out in different ways you haven't even thought of. And so... Uh, it is a great, great advice. 
Uh, if you were to think through your lessons, and I, you've been involved with construction as well, and uh, the cannabis industry, and now uh, the wine industry, maybe just some lessons, uh, mm -hmm. you know, general lessons you've learned uh, over the years? The uh, thing that sometimes people claim I'm an expert at is marketing and consumer packaged goods. And I would say what I've learned over the years in branding is to be yourself and your brand is already created, actually. Your brand is your reputation if you're trying to raise money or your brand is your uh, commitment to what you're doing. So I would say that just really personal development is the best way to build your brand and then vis-a-vis -vis whatever product service you choose to endeavor towards in the future. So I would say that's an amazing lesson to share. I would also say ask for what you want, you know? Um, ask and ye shall receive, right? And so many people don't know what to ask or don't have the words to ask for exactly what they want. So I might want a car, right? Or I might want a 1958 Speedster that's silver with black leather and a white steering wheel, you know? So it's, it's really, you wanna be specific about what you want, ask the world for it, write it down, and uh, always try to be tacting in a, in a direction. I would say like, you know, we're all setting our sail and we're all gonna arrive somewhere in five years. The question is where are we gonna arrive and then what life have you designed for yourself? So think about it, you know, take the time and it's a really great experience if you paint and design that, that future for yourself. Yeah. I love the idea of engineering your own life instead of letting it happen to you. And yeah. you know, too many of us probably do that. So are guilty of it for sure. Yeah. All right, uh, are you okay with questions from yeah, the audience? So uh, I saw one right here, so I'll let you go ahead and start, yeah. So the question is, how did you prepare for Dragon's Den and what are some of the things that you could do to make sure you present well when you get there? So, the dragons try to tip you off with numbers, right? At least that was their MO back then. They would try to get you on your margins or try to get you on your numbers and try to make you sweat and tip you around. So I just was very prepared on my numbers. There was no question that the dragon could ask me that I wasn't ready to number them back. And I learned that at Ivy in, in Bob Norris's class, don't give a qualitative answer to a quantitative question and vice versa. So if you know your numbers, that is a self-confidence that comes in the presentation. And then the qualitative, the more, you know, painting the picture with words is the other part of the presentation. So I would say if any of you are feeling a little nervous about either side of that in your presentation, Nail the numbers, that's like stacking confidence on your, your business. And then the qualitative side will be easy after you feel comfortable on the numbers. Always try to put the listener in the place, put them in the problem before you tell them the solution. So for Saks, I would say, you know, have, have you ever been playing golf and it's, you know, on the 16th hole and it's 36 degrees out and all the guys would be like, oh, okay, I've been there. And then I'd be like, oh, have you ever been uh, driving in your car for six hours? And, and, you know, and then the guys would be there. And, and then I would start to tell them my solution. So if you don't feel comfortable maybe telling that uh, quantitative side, you can tell them a little bit of defining them in the problem. Or another trick I use is to tell a story. If you know a story, you can tell both of those through a story. And then, then that makes you feel comfortable. I always feel like presenting 
is really like storytelling. It's definitely storytelling, and, it, and it's singing that first song that you know really well, and then the concert's going to be great. You just got to get that first story out and get your comfort up, and it helps me. I'm going I'm to give some kudos to Bob Norris real quick, one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, he, he worked with us for a number of years at Ivy. He was a, a faculty member, but he left to start a, or grow a company that you might have heard of called the Bombay Company. Grew it to over a billion dollars. Came back to teach and shared a lot of his wisdom. So uh, he was he was a great guy. Uh, next question is about resilience. And uh, you know, look, you're 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 bound to fail when anytime you try to push the envelope and do new things, right? So how do you push through that and and, and keep yourself headed in the right direction? I, th I think when I hear the word no, I'm basically trying to really listen through the no and why is the person saying no, and then improve my product or service versus sometimes it's almost like people will hear no and they'll take it personally or they'll say that is the truth, right? And I think a no is a closer step to a yes, basically. You just heard no now, but let's approach that person in three weeks after you've done what they said wasn't good about the product. Now what are they going to say? And then you're like, you know what? I took your advice. Here's this great product that you helped me design. Oh, okay, well, now I'm a buyer. Versus that person said no, and now I'm going to go and give up. Or that person said no, and they're absolutely correct. Right? So, yeah. and, and sometimes it's redeploy your resources to the next idea, right? Uh, don't, don't spend too long when you keep getting the no and you're not able to pass through that or, or, or see the real reason they're talking about, right? I think as well, the function of success is probably directly tied to the amount of no's you've had in your life. <laughs> if you've had a lot of no's, that means you're probably doing things, you're trying things, you're experimenting with things. And I think, you know, the best entrepreneur maybe of all time, Steve Jobs talked about that all the time. Just, you know, trying to polish rocks by making mistakes all the time and going forward versus talking about how are we going to polish these rocks. Yeah, fantastic. You know? What were your influences perhaps at, at university? And secondly, how to optimize the, the student experience. Yeah, optimize the student experience, staying in school yeah. while you uh, <laughs> well, optimize your entrepreneurial uh, opportunities. You know, to answer the first question, it's very easy. It's Stu Thornhill, the gentleman right up the way here. He was the first investor in Saks. He gave me $50,000 for 5%. Let's hear it for Stu. Yay. And. Uh, I would say that's, that this gentleman's influenced my life in so many positive ways, and he was one of the first investors in Doja and continues to be a mentor of mine. So thank you, Sue, bottom of my heart, my friend. And I would say that uh, many other professors did as well, you know, Eric and Dave Simpson. And I found at Ivy it was so special that if I had a question or an idea, I could just go up to the second story and talk to a supply chain expert or talk to someone who had low-cost region supply connections. So I would suggest or encourage all of you to really engage with the faculty and the staff. They are so eager to help. And you also all have the student veil over you right now where you can also go talk to the CEO of RBC, you know, Western alumni, and, and he's gonna talk to you because you are a, a student at Western or an, uh, affiliated with him versus you know, three years from now, you're going to be, he'll think something different. But while you're here, you're in this amazing umbrella 
of incubation and it's not just in these four walls, it's me too. You know, if one of you wants to talk about an idea, I'm gonna be open-minded to talking to any one of you as well. And I look forward to hearing about all the great ideas in the room. And then to the second piece, I would say I was very active in my hours here. You know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time not doing anything. I was part of the real estate club. I was part of the NBA hockey team. I was uh, the head of my section social director. So I was, you know, meeting up with the other sections, social directors. I was definitely influenced by my sister's, you know, example here of how to be a great student and also be part of the community. I remember we used to do a bunch of like going and picking up leaves and things in the community. So I think that was really important. And then I also was out doing trips. We were going to Cyberposium at Harvard. We were doing all the things that were around. I would looked into going international. When I traveled, I'd go to Hong Kong, Ivy. I would go to INSEAD in France just because of the relationships that Ivy had. So around the world, you all have access to not just these great entrepreneurs, but also all the great schools that Ivy has chosen to affiliate with. And I have a pretty routine schedule since I was an athlete. I get up, you know, between 5.30 and, you know, or at 5.30 every day without an alarm clock. I hit the, you know, exercise and then start the day. And basically, I've had a routine for 20 plus years. So I'd say getting in a routine helps entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, for sure. Take advantage of the resources and the opportunities that are, that are available to you. And I think as a student, sometimes you go, oh, they won't listen to me. They won't talk to me. They will. Like Trent said, now's the time they will pick up the phone and answer and chat with you yeah. uh, rather than when you're in industry somewhere and you're just somebody. But uh, when you're an alum, when you're a student and reaching out to especially alum, they're going to talk to you. You know, there's so many, so many doors that you can open that way that yeah. give it a shot. Take advantage of it. Totally. Love it. So the next question, sources of motivation. Yeah, when I was down and out, like the first year in Saks was like 26,000 in sales. You know, it wasn't a lot of sales. I didn't pay myself any money. And so I would say there's lots of points that are, are you're going to be down. But I, I carry a, what I call my dreams card in my wallet. I have since like 1999. And it's basically a goal setting card is another word for it. And it kind of categorizes the, th the things that I am trying to do with my life. And if I'm ever down, I go to my card and, and I write my card when I'm in a good place. And I go to my little place on Knox Mountain and I speak to myself and I say, what are the decisions that Trent can make today that future Trent will thank today Trent for? And I just speak to myself and I envision, you know, five years down the road with Rhea and what are the things that I want to try to do. So I would encourage all of you to try to write those things down. And whenever you're down and out, you can go to your card and say, you know what, I got to recalibrate my sale. I'm headed here. I'm not going back there, you know? And, and so I'd say that's a tool that I've used for, for so long and it's really helped and shaped my life, probably more than any other thing. Cool. So the question is a lot of pressure to take a conventional job, right? Uh, for those of you not at Ivy perhaps, but a uh, conventional job in whatever your field is. And so how do you break free of that and kind of change when, your dream? When I came into Ivy, I was planning to be in construction because that's what I had done previously. And that was our family's business. And when I was leaving Ivy, I had an opportunity to join the RBC Professional Sports Management Program. So manage pro athletes money. Then I had an offer from Ellis Dawn, the construction company, to do the construction route. And I basically just wanted to 
find financial independence has always been one of my biggest goals. So I also work backwards from where I'm trying to go and which of those three doors provided financial independence. And I went entrepreneurship. So I think it's easy to make decisions when you know where you want to go. And then you can say, does this decision get me closer or further away from X? And then you're so right. When I went to Western, it was all about finance, investment banking, and consulting. And that's still great. Those are great industries. And you can be an entrepreneur in any one of those as well, I would say. But I was very focused on trying to do my own thing. At that time, I wasn't the smartest person at Ivy by far but I was definitely one of the hardest workers and I would put myself against anybody in a competition to work at something and just be persistent. So I'm very confident in my ability to work hard and stay the course. So that was something I think that people were saying are good entrepreneurial traits. So, and then I, I really just believed in myself and I knew as a young person, I didn't have a lot of liabilities. So I didn't have a wife or a mortgage or kids. And I would say when you're young and don't have some of the other strings to your life, it's the best time to try. So I always knew I could, you know, go back or try one of those other jobs in the future, but I definitely was willing to give myself a chance. Very cool. So how do you differentiate between you know, legitimate criticism and negativity? And then how do, you, yeah. how do you know when it's time to let an idea go? Okay, well, I'll start on that one because it's a great question. How do you know when to quit, right, or what to pivot? So those are two different things. And I, I always set milestones, which are proof of concept. So I always thought if I could sell 10,000 pairs and get into 200 stores, that is outside the friends and family telling you it's great when it's average or I think if you set milestones that are realistic along the path that are reassuring to you that you should go, you know, deeper into this dark unknown forest is one way that I've been successful in doing that. And then also you can say, do I pivot or do I quit? Those are two different options, right? And neither should be felt to be ashamed about. It could be a great decision to quit on that idea. And two years, three years down the road, a new opportunity came up. So that's something that's happened to me before. I've had lots of failures. The first time I ever scraped together $20,000, me and my friend started a company called Think Media. It was like digital display advertising boards before that was a thing. And we like lived off little Caesars and we gave it our best, you know, and that was like, it would be the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars today in and that was like all I had, you know? So that was really an important thing. And I, f I failed so many times and, and it's really just about where on that milestone, do you want to set the next guide that you should go forward and, and you see the best companies in the world do it today. We had a really interesting webinar with Sukinder Singh, another alum, and her whole philosophy is like entrepreneurship should be about a portfolio of opportunities. You're going to do a lot of things and most of them are, are not going to go anywhere. But all you need is that one or two that really take off for you to, to really have that entrepreneurial dream that, that, that you're looking for. So, you know, don't put all your stock in that one idea, but it's, it's probably multiple ideas through your career. And then the, the first question, I think the 
opinion of other people definitely matters. If they're a customer, they're a customer. You've got to listen. But I'm always looking for experts. And then also the best case is if you can get experts to disagree and you're in the conversation and then you understand why are they disagreeing, I find that really valuable. So if you can set up that triangle, that's very helpful. What book would, would you recommend? Yeah, the, my favorite business book is Purple Cow by Seth Godin. And that's basically the book that I had at my desk as I worked through Saks. And the principle of that is if you're driving through the you know, English countryside for three hours and all you see are black and white cows, they start to fall into the background. And then after a while, you don't even notice the cows, right? And then you come over one hill and there's a purple cow in the field. Everyone notices that cow. And so you as a product or service have to be a purple cow. You know, in today's world, it's so saturated and every brand is discount to luxury segmented. And, you know, so I think whatever you're doing, you want to try to be a purple cow and start out in your skeleton. How do you design that purple cow in your business? Very cool. So the role of supply chain transparency. I think it's really important as early days, like in my career, it was uh, Nike getting smoked for not having that, right? And then it's evolved into, uh, be it the Coca that you can buy is fair trade. And so I think you're, you see it and I think it's important to the customer at some level. And then there is how you wish things were and then the, there's how things are. And so I feel like you always have to be considerate of that. I, I live in an optimistic, idealist mind, and I want everything to be amazing, and I'm, not, and I'm definitely positive about those things. But you also want to be realistic sometimes. And a lot of customers are sensitive on price. So I would say in your MVP, if you can figure out what your value is on price and then maybe even transition it onto the large manufacturer or, you know, balance that risk out so their brand is better because they're working with your branded, assured, quality, supply chain checked brand. So there's lots of examples of it in different categories. And if you guys are trying to be the, you know, blue stamp of that industry or the, the trusted source, that's great and best of luck to you and just try to have one really good example of a great company you helped improve their trust because that's really what you're trying to sell is trust. So, you know, how do you improve trust is the problem and solve that. Let me see if I get another in the back. When you're raising capital, I think it's uh, very important to know what you need again. So write it down and entrepreneurship twice as long, twice as much money. So then times it by two and then look at your cap table and say, is that, you know, possible? Basically, those are three things I kind of go through every time. How much money am I trying to raise? Um, Debt is cheaper than equity is a rule I learned here as a general principle. And so if you can get debt and you're confident in your future, then, then try to do that. If you have to sell equity, you know, there's other ways you can do that as well. But I've been successful in speaking with high net worth individuals. Typically when I had no capital, how do I raise capital? And I've always felt that no good idea should be denied capital. So if you believe it's a good idea, and it actually is, the world will give you that capital. So you've got to keep knocking on the right doors. And 
then once you become more advanced in capital raising, then you start looking at how do I approach strategic investors right from the start. So what I did with, with Doja essentially was write on a whiteboard what is the dream situation. And uh, we got a $10 million strategic investment from Afria and eventually Canopy bought us in large part because they didn't want Afria to have us. So, you know, I would say that that's also something I've learned over time is when you're starting out, you know, when I came up to the idea when I when Saks, right? How do you value Saks? It's it's it has no sales. It's a an idea, and I said it's a million dollar idea because I wouldn't be interested in it if it wasn't, and neither would you, you know. <laughs> so that was my original pitch to people, and you know, uh, uh, that's the way I approached it. And I would say the best way also to to raise capital is ensure your honesty and integrity is at. 10. So if anybody checks out on you, it comes back that you're honest and that you're integrous. If you've lost money, you can still be honest and integrous. And as we're seeing in the news today, right, some people who aren't have tragically affected many thousands of people's future. But I would say that that's something as a character piece as an entrepreneur, if you always keep your honesty and integrity, the reputational value and capital that will flow from that is priceless. Couldn't agree more, actually. I think it's the, the one thing you have that you need to hang on to and that you have to count on as an entrepreneur because you need so many people to get behind you and help. And you can take 20 years or a career and, and you know, thousands of people and then do one wrong move and it's all gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Trent, this has been amazing. I, I wanted to share a story that we talked about just on the walk over here. So, uh, I'm hoping that this is going to happen for one of you, but uh, Trent was reminding me that we had Chip Wilson uh, to, to the school back when Lululemon was just a Vancouver company. They weren't public. They really hadn't expanded out beyond that. And Trent remembers that thinking, hmm, I think there's something here. I think I could do something like this. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.